We are going to study the book of Jonah. I'm gonna. It's probably one of the uh, stories that most people know, but not necessarily understand what uh, its meaning. Okay, so I'm gonna talk about Jonah today. It's called, um, oh, Jonah, um, the the truth behind the legend. Okay, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a wonderful morning that we can praise your name, worship you, and we have given you our praises. And now may you send down your word, your, the understanding of your truth, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Bless me to speak your truth and bless the congregation to understand by connecting with your mind and uh, let the truth transform our life and become more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. The book of Jonah, the truth behind the legend, part one. It goes down when the right people are wrong. It, it rhymes. I made it that way. So, um, you know, when I gave the topic to Anita, our secretary, she was a little surprised. She says, doesn't sound like your title, which is usually very academic and and boring. Um, but uh, I'm trying to make a change. Okay. Um, the book of Jonah. Everybody remember Jonah and the story of whale, right? And whether or not it's a whale, actually, we're not sure. It just said a fish. It could be a whale. But what does it mean? And was that a legend, a story made up, or is that really historical truth? Um, well, good questions. Um, I believe it's truth. Uh, it was written kind of like a black humor. It was a um, sarcast against himself, the author himself. That's what I believe. The background is very rich. Jonah means dove. And if you remember any popular symbol of dove, it means peace, right? The dove with a olive branch. After the great flood of Noah, Noah sent out a dove, and the dove came back with an olive branch, and that means God's wrath against mankind had receded, okay, together with the flood. So it is a symbol of peace. So we may say that Jonah means peace, okay, and, uh, but just as a footnote, in the Bible, the word uh, dove does not always mean peace, okay? It can mean simpleness, okay? In the Bible, uh, the, uh, in the book of Song of Solomon, the, the man called the woman, you know, saying, your eyes are look, look like the eyes of a dove. <laughs> it's, it's a simple and uh, innocent. So it's kind of saying you're innocent and... Uh, Beautiful because of that person. And um, uh, also once the word dove was used to represent Ephraim, but in a wrong tone, it means that you're simple-minded and stupid, foolish. So it's not always positive. But in this case, I believe it is peace. Okay? And he is a son of Amitai. Do you know what the word Amitai means? It came from the Hebrew word emet, which means truth. 
<laughs> so you know Emmett Smith, right? The, the <laughs> um, what do you call it? He's running back, right? Dallas Cowboys. Uh, Cowboys. I was a football fan in his time, but not anymore after that. So <laughs> um, he he's named as Truth, which is good. So. The book was named after Jonah, son of Amittai, peace, son of truth. Hmm. Does it have some symbolism in there? Maybe. If you want to have peace with God, you must believe in the truth, right? And stick to it. Okay, he was a historical person. If you turn your Bible to 2 Kings 14, 25. 2 Kings 14... Um, actually 23, it says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. True, that's in Samaria, oh, right? <laughs> all right. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamat as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-hefer. Okay, you see, Jonah, son of Amittai, was a historical person. He uh, was from the town of Gath-hefer, uh, which means got hef, uh, a heifer, which means wine press of digging. Uh, if you check the book of Joshua, that city belonged to the tribe of Zebulun, which means honor. I'm just trying to see if there's a symbolism. Maybe, maybe not. And uh, he is from uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. It actually is part of Galilee. And uh, um, he was one of those prophets from a place where no prophet is supposed to be from. <laughs> so, he's from Galilee, probably Nahum, and then Jesus. Okay. And uh, the reason that they were not favored by the Hebrews, probably because they spoke good words toward the Gentiles. Um, well, at least um, Jonah did. And um, Nahum prophesied against the same country, Assyria. And Jesus, of course, brought grace to all people. And he lived, Jonah lived under King Jeroboam II, who reigned during 793 to 753 BC, 40 years, who took back the land previously lost to Aram and restored Israel's northern border to Davidic time. We know that Israel had its golden time under David and Solomon. At that time, their border was the greatest. Okay? After the kingdom split, the, the country shrank in size, both north and south. But at the time of Jeroboam II, actually the north expanded to its original size, and so did the south, as if they had a good time, you know, restored glory. However, it's not as you think. Okay. And, but this event was prophesied by Jonah and became true. Guess what happened to his popularity in the northern kingdom of Israel? Expanded, right? He was very popular. People loved him because he prophesied about his own country's glory. 
So Jonah was a real historical person. He was a prophet of God, and he was a patriot of the northern kingdom, Israel. And uh, he was kind of a nationalist, and he was very popular. That's the background. Now, Israel at that time was in its last days of glory. The kingdom split in 930 BC due to Solomon's idolatry because he married too many people, too many wives for political reasons. Many of the small kingdoms around Israel, who was the strongest country and richest country at that time, these small kings just marry a daughter to Solomon so that they will be under the wing of protection. And these political issues happened and Solomon... I think he surrendered to the culture of the day. He married too many wives, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Man, just three and one would would drive people crazy, not to say 700, 100. So he was crazy. He overestimated his intelligence, and he didn't use it. Okay. He was a man given wisdom, but he did not fully use it. So because of that, he had to let, let these wives worship their idols. And later, he even participated with them. And that brought in God's wrath. So God split out the kingdom, given ten tribes to Jeroboam, some son of Nebat, in the north, and then only two tribes, Judah and Simeon, actually, in the south, with part of the land of Benjamin, okay? But the two tribes were Judah and Simeon. And um, uh, kingdom split due to the idolatry of Solomon. Solomon died, but the idolatry continued because of Jeroboam the first. He, um, um, uh, it, not Jeroboam, it, yeah, not Rehoboam, Jeroboam the first in the north, right? He built two uh, golden calves, one in Dan at the north, one in uh, Bethel at the south. He gave the convenience to his people so that they don't have to go to the southern kingdom to worship God. That, he thought, might reduce their patriotism to their country. So, this is sin. And the idolatry brought God's judgment. Later, one king, Ahab, married Jezebel, who was a princess of Sidon. We know that Sidon was one of the two principal cities of Phoenicia. Sidon and uh, Tyre. Okay? And uh, they worshipped Baal. Baal means the Lord. Uh, it actually is a god of the rain. He brought the, you know, the rain on the land. And uh, Baal, I think, was a prototype of Zeus, was who throws thunders. You know? And uh, that was a cult. And uh, uh, Ahab marrying Jezebel means that this religion of the Phoenicians was brought into Israel. And later, Jezebel's daughter, I think it's um, Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. I didn't mention Jezebel, I just said Ahab's daughter, uh, Athaliah, married into the southern kingdom, Judah. And so goes Baalism into Judah. So this cult went from a foreign country into Israel, then into Judah, all due to political marriages. And the whole country was corrupted. Both kingdoms. And uh, God raised up a king called Jehu. He slaughtered both houses, north and south, and that temporarily cleansed Baalism. However, the worship, uh, the idolatry of the two golden calves continued in the north. 
Okay, and Israel therefore was oppressed by Iran, which is another name for Syria or Damascus, the capital. Now, Iran is a nation. You might think if you draw an, a, a a map, just think about a opposite V. Okay, uh, is, uh, here is Judah, and here is Israel, and here is Iran, and then. Under there, uh, in Mesopotamia, you have Assyria, Nineveh, and then Babylonia, okay, around Babylon, Nineveh and Babylon. So you have this opposite V. Okay. Aram is kind of the buffer city between, between the Mesopotamia and the Promised Land. Okay. When Aram was there, God raised up Aram to, to oppress Israel as a punishment for their idolatry. So Israel lost a lot of land to Aram. However, when God gave them the opportunity to repent by raising up Jehu, but he only cleansed half of the problem, not all of the problems, and they made no significant changes. Then what happened to Israel? God determined to raise up Assyria as his rod of discipline to punish Israel. Okay? There is, however, a buffer uh, in the middle. A washer, if you might call it, you know, in the middle. It's Aram. So Aram used to be a oppression, but it was kind of a, more of a nuisance. And now God wants the real discipline, so he raised up Assyria, a real giant, a superpower of the world. And this superpower chipped away the power of Aram. At first, it seems good for Israel. Because Israel was able to gain back the land. But guess what happened when the, uh, when the buffer country is gone? You're facing the giants directly. You know? And that means doom for Israel. So finally, Israel was taken into captive by Assyria in 723 or 722 B.C. Um, and it's gone. Ten tribes are gone. And they... they they never really come back. Some of them, the remnants, went into the south and remained. So um, Israel uh, gained against Aram under Jeroboam II only to collapse under Assyria 20 years later. See, it was a very short time of last glory. Do you know that when people die, they actually have a short time of clear-mindedness and, uh, and strength? My mother died in my arms and... Uh, um, she had, you know, last stage cancer and uh, was dying and was very weak. But in that day, she suddenly sat up and talked with us and uh, and was laughing and then suddenly lost consciousness. Then she's died. She's dead. So it often happens, you know, before the death, there is a last moment of strength or life and glory. It happens in physical life of human beings and sometimes in countries. Israel had that and I think this country may be having that too. Believe it or not. I think our financial trouble should have caused death already but the recent discovery of these oil may have lengthened our life for <laughs> a few more decades. I don't know. But it just seems like so. Okay. My mind is just linking things together. But anyway, that was Israel. It, it was having its last moment of glory. Now, what about Assyria? Assyria was in a temporary downtime. 
Assyria was known for its military might and cruelty in terrorizing the people of its conquest. If you talk about terrorism, Assyria invented it. Okay? When they conquer a city, they will kill all the leaders of the city and every man who resisted them, and they will cut off their heads and pile up at the gate of the city and make a, a hill of heads. And uh, just to terrorize the people, anybody against us will be like that. You know? And uh, they will lay heavy taxes on the conquered people to pay tributes, and their country is supported basically by these tributes. And, uh, and then they will go out and conquer again, and more and more. That's a military machine. The more they conquer, the more tributes they have, and the, the more money they have to raise up money, and the more they conquer. It's just a, a monster. Okay? It was known for this sin of cruelty. And uh, uh, God of course, is a God of life. He hates these sins, and he will discipline them. He wants them to repent. And uh, Adad-Nerari III, the previous king of Assyria, who reigned in 810 to 783 BC, he narrowed their pantheon, pantheon to one god, Nebo. They used to worship a pantheon, many gods. Okay, uh, But this person, he narrowed it to one god, Nebo, which means um, wisdom. Kind of like um, the Egyptian king, what is his name? Uh, who um, he worshipped only one god, the sun, the sun disk. Um, do you remember? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, Akhenaten, right? Akhenaten. And uh, those are not turning into monotheism. They don't really believe in the god Thales, as we believe, they are committing monolatry. You know, mono, one, idolatry. They are idolizing one idol rather than many idols. Okay? However, this change prepared for the coming repentance under the visit of um, Jonah. Because when Jonah preached, he said, the God of heavens who will doom your city if you don't repent. And in their mind, oh, that's the one God they believe. Then he is mad with us, so we need to repent. See, they made the connection. Okay. God prepared the stage. And then Ashur then the third, the king of, Israel, uh, king of Assyria at the time of Jonah, who reigned in 772 to 754 B.C., he experienced many setbacks. He had a, a military defeat under the Eurasians. That's the modern country of um, Armenia in that area. And uh, he had two plagues and one solar eclipse. So plague, a solar eclipse, a plague. That was all signs of doom for ancient people. They, ancient people knew that the plagues came from the wrath of God. Okay. And for a solar eclipse, they also believe that was a sign of, of, of judgment. Because God is withholding light, which is a source of you know, life. Okay. And, uh, or gods, in their case, is, is only their idol. So uh, they experienced these things, and they were really in a downtime. They were in fear. Okay. And uh, this solar eclipse, eclipse in 763 B.C. can be determined exactly on a certain date. On this year, uh, and uh, this is thanks to today's, um, um, you know, astronomy, and we can calculate back. We can do the retro calculation, and uh, uh, solar eclipse is very local. 
you know, if total eclipse is very local. So we can say, we can find out at Assyria in that time uh, period, there's only one. And this date helps us to determine the uh, chronology of Assyria, and with that, the chronology of uh, Egypt and, Ju uh, no, uh, Israel and Judah, and then the whole ancient Middle East. So, so it's a very important one. Anyway, Jonah's visit to Assyria most likely happened after these three disasters, because they were under real fear. Okay? And that prompted them to repent. Okay? And before the end of his king in uh, Israel, um, who was Jeroboam II. So therefore, we can narrow the time of writing of this book, or at least the visit, to within five years. From 759, the, the second plague in Assyria, to 754, the death of Jeroboam II. You see, how amazingly we can narrow the time. This happened during that five years, this visit happened. And it causes the repentance in uh, Assyria, much to the uh, chagrin of um, um, Jonah. Now, the structure of the book is um, symmetric. It has two parts. Chapter 1 and 2 is how God saved a Hebrew servant. And chapter 3 and 4 is how God saved a Gentile nation. Now, each of them has two parts. First is about sin and punishment, and later is about grace and understanding. We can see that God is graceful not only to his own chosen people, but also to people of all nations. Okay, now, let's... Turn to the text now, please. Um, open the book of Jonah and uh, turn to chapter 1. Okay. Chapter 1, 1 to 3. Jonah was disobedient. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. All right. So what did God do? He commanded Jonah, his chosen servant, a prophet, to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, which is east of Israel. Okay. He asked Jonah to go and prophesy God's judgment on the city of Nineveh. Now, <clears throat> it was actually a great honor to be chosen as a messenger of God. Don't you think so? It is a great honor. And uh, he could have been like the two angels uh, sent to Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, they were sent there to test of their sins, to verify if they're really as bad as has been, it has been heard in heaven. And uh, it's confirmed, and then God judged them. Then the people of God can rejoice in God's judgment of evil, right? Or... God saved the few remnants, they can rejoice in God's mercy on his people. Either way, it's an honor to be chosen as God's messenger. If you have been called, would you go as God's messenger? You should. 
unless you have the same mindset as Jonah, right? He had a conflict of interest, okay? And uh, uh, he could have been like Nahum later, uh, who prophesied against Nineveh shortly before 612 BC, when the city was really destroyed. See, Nineveh repented for a while, and then God blessed it, let it be strong, and uh, disciplined Israel. But after that, their sin came back again, and God judged them and let it be totally destroyed. So two nations, Babylonia, Neo-Babylonia, and the Media, rose together, and they conquered Nineveh. They opened the the river uh, gate, gate river, or dam, (laughs) Uh, and they, it flooded the city. The city was covered under sand and dirt for over 2,000 years until 1900 when uh, Sir, uh, I think, Austin Laird of Great Britain, he dug out the library of Nineveh. Before then, uh, the liberal people doubted even the existence of Assyria. And together with uh, uh, the Hittites, you know, they say they don't exist. But later, science and uh, archaeology just one by one affirmed the Bible as accurate. Okay. So, um, yeah, uh, Jonah could have been rejoicing and uh, uh, over God's message, either for his mercy or judgment. Right? He should have gone, but he refused. Instead, he he bought a fare on the ship to go to Tarshish. Now, where's Tarshish? Actually, is a question. If it's Tarsus, the city, that would be in Asia Minor. It's still in the east, but north of Assyria. But if it's Tarshish, as some people say, which is a city in Spain, actually facing the Atlantic Ocean, if that's the case, then it's going west, totally opposite to God's calling. And in this case, probably the Spain one is more accurate. Okay? He's going the opposite direction. Okay? And uh, he, why did he choose to go the opposite direction? I would think maybe as a prophet he foresaw that God might forgive the Assyrians. Because in 4.2, in he said, I know you are a mercy, merciful God, full of love and slow to anger. You would have forgiven them. I knew it. You know, I didn't want to come. See, he knew God's character. Okay? And also, he knew that politically, if Assyria was forgiven, it would rise up and it would chip away Aram and later become a direct threat to Israel. He knew that would happen. But he didn't want that to happen. Because of what? Because he loved his country. He was a patriot of Israel. And he didn't want his country to suffer. Even though he knew that his country was sinful and deserved judgment. Do we share the feelings of Jonah today for America? We love our country. I am an adopted citizen of this country, but I love America very much. Okay? And uh, I don't want it to suffer. I hate to see that happen. If I could avoid it, make it stop, I would do anything I can. Okay? Because I love the country. However, when we live as the people of God on earth, who is our real king? The earthly one or heavenly one? 
Well, both are, but one is higher. The heavenly one is higher, right? So, when they are in conflict, who should we obey? The heavenly king, right? So, when the heavenly king wants to judge your earthly country, what should you do? Obey and take it. Okay. It's hard to swallow, but it is the right thing. Jeremiah later, he prophesied against his own country, Judah. And he said that New Babylonia will, first of all, put Judah under vassalage, you know, being a servant country. And if the king of Judah would take this yoke, the king would live. But if he would reject and rebel, he will die. And so will the country, and so will the temple. Well, the king refused and rebelled, and then the temple was burned. You see, and uh, Jeremiah, it was a very hard time, but he preached for his country to repent against his patriotism. You see, there may be some time like that for us in the future. And uh, I hate to f- for that to happen. But if that happens, let the Holy Spirit direct us to do the right thing. And let's not be like Jonah. Jonah was wrong. He was wrong about the will of God. He tried to disobey, and guess what? The will of God cannot be turned back. What he decides becomes real. Whoever he uses to fulfill it can be changed, but the will of God will become reality. So he has a wrong idea about the will of God. He has a wrong idea about the word of God. Since he has heard the word of God, he should have obeyed, but he thought, I could ignore it. No, the word of God is truth, and the truth will make you free. And if you don't obey the truth, you are bound, and you will suffer. And he did suffer. And... uh, um, And he was wrong about the Gentiles. He thought God is the God of the Hebrews and not God of the Gentiles. No, God is the God of heavens and the earth and of all nations. He chose Israel specially, but it doesn't mean he doesn't love love other people. And uh, he was wrong about the circumstances in life. He thought that God allowed him to go to the West. Since he could buy a ticket and he could board a ship, right? God allowed him. So, he thought, I could just gone. But, no. <laughs> uh, he uh, was wrong in many things. He was a, one of the right people. He was an Israel. He was a Hebrew. He was one of the right people. But he was wrong in many things. Okay. The servant of God made up his mind to disobey God. So Jonah b- brought trouble. In 1, 4 to 5, let's read. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lay, laying down and the fallen sound asleep. Hmm. You know, once the people of God is disobedient, they, God becomes their enemy besides the world. If you are a people of the world, will the world be against you? No, it will leave you alone. There are many Christians who say, I have met more trouble as a Christian than when I was an unbeliever. 
at least in the first stage of their believer's life. Okay. Why? Because now the world is against them, and before they learn how to trust in God, they have no protection, and then the world persecutes them. And after they learn how to trust in God, since God is greater than the world, they are totally free, and they are safe. However, when they are disobedient of God, then now they have both the world and God as their enemy. You see? And they are making more trouble. Jews were God's chosen people in the Old Testament period, and the old time, actually, in, in a visible kingdom sense. And uh, have they suffered more than any, any other races? What do you think? Yeah, what did Tevye say in the movie? God, why wouldn't you choose somebody else? <laughs> yeah, that's true. As Christians, you are another kind of chosen people of God now. But if you are disobedient, would you be punished more or less than non-believers? actually more. So that's why as people of God, it's better we are either total free or totally in trouble. Okay? There's no middle way for us. So uh, when God punishes his disobedient people, other people would be involved too. There are um, what do you call them? The casualties. Um, the collateral damages. Right. And uh, other people who are sinners nonetheless, but they are innocent for this specific sin. But they would be involved. These sailors, they were not involved with this, right? But they, were, they almost died. Okay? The ship almost wrecked. The sailors prayed to their gods and then jettisoned the goods, but for, for no avail. And Jonah, on the other hand, he went down to the hold, the bottom level of the ship, and fell asleep. Either he was totally exhausted because he was battling with God, or he made up his mind he had a stony heart. He says, no matter what happens, I'm not going to change one iota of my direction. Either way, he fell asleep. But if you look at his path, he went down, he was worshiping God in Jerusalem, he went down to Joppa, which is on the plain. And then from Joppa, from the land to the ship, the deck. And from the ship, the deck to the hold. He was going down and down and down. And here's where I come, came with my title. It goes down when the right people are wrong. See, he went down and down and down. He was just one step short of being jettisoned into the sea. One step short of death. Okay. When the right people are wrong, you have two enemies, God and the world. And then you are in big trouble and bringing trouble to people around you. Okay. And... Uh, now, J Jonah, can sin be unpunished? Will God let sin go unpunished? No. It's either in this life or forever. Okay? And his sin, uh, Jonah's sin, was punished immediately. The, uh, first of all, the, the Gentiles prayed, but wrongly. Okay? Let's read verses 6 to 8. It says, So the captain approached him and said, How is that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lot so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And wh what, uh, where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? These people are really on the edge. 
Okay, uh, there's no time to wait. Okay, uh, first of all, they prayed, each prayed to his own God, but of no avail. These people are polytheists, but they are pious. They, they're worshiping the wrong gods, but they were pious nonetheless. They believed rightly that this disaster was brought by a god uh, who may be punishing one of these people on board. However, they don't know whose god it is. So they ask everybody pray to his own god, and if his own god is merciful, it might forgive the person and everybody's life. Okay, save every life. However, they all prayed and uh, no result. And uh, what did they figure out? Is from the God of another person, not those who are praying. And who is not praying? The only person who is not in the prayer team was sound asleep in the hold. Right? So just to confirm their suspicion, they found a fair way, casting lots. Can God let the lot fall on the right side? So what they do is divide people into two groups and fall on their side and then another two groups and fall on one side and finally it's narrow and narrow to one person. Can God control the lot? He certainly can. Achan, when he sinned by stealing one cloth from the fallen city Jericho, when God said you should have burned everything, what happened to the whole Israelites? God was mad with them and they were defeated at Ai, right? So how did Israelites find out who was the sinner? Casting lots. Finally it fell on Achan. By the way, his, mean, his name means trouble. <laughs> he was later stoned and he was thrown into a valley, buried in a valley called the Valley of Achan, trouble. Okay. And now guess who is the troublemaker now? Jonah. <laughs> Okay, and uh, they found out Jonah was the troublemaker, and they asked Jonah, uh, you know, what is the reason? What have you done to cause this? By the way, who is your God? And uh, and then Jonah gave this um, answer. He says, "Yeah, I am the trouble." Jonah said in verses nine to twelve. He said to them, "I am a Hebrew." And I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the man became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For they, the man knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you, that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up. And throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. See, Jonah claimed to worship, literally fear, the God of heavens, the king of the universe, and the God of all nations. He said that with great pride. I am a Hebrew. Okay. And uh, uh, I fear the king of the heavens, the maker of the nations. And uh, he said it with great pride. But on the other hand, did he really fear God? True fear of God brings what? Wisdom. And the wisdom <laughs> is to obey God. Right? But he was not obeying. So did he really fear God? No. Okay. 
How about these Gentile <laughs> sailors? Did they fear his God? They actually did. You see the contrast? When the people of God are wrong, the right people see the when the right people are wrong, it seems that the wrong people are very right. And they are. Okay. And the Gentile sailors had great fear of the Hebrew God and asked about the offense. And Jonah confessed that he was trying to escape from the, his God's face. That's another inconsistency. If his God is the king of the universe, can he escape from the face of God? If God is everywhere, can he? He can't. So there's a hole in his theology, right? <laughs> he, he's inconsistent. So... Jonah asked to be thrown into the sea. He knew that the wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. Okay? And he will not budge a little, right? He would rather die than fulfilling God's mission and cause trouble for his own country. See, he, he loved his country more than his own life. Wasn't he a real patriot? Yes. But was he a faithful believer? No. Okay. And, uh, well, what did the Gentiles do? Once asked, kill me. The Gentiles were known to have no respect of life. Right? Since Assyrians were judged for that. And the, the people of God are supposed to be lovers of life. Right? They should respect life. Right? Because their God is the God of life. God of the living. Right? But... What did Jonah think about his own life? He thought it as nothing. What did he think about the lives of the hundreds of thousands of people in the city of Nineveh? He thought them as nothing. How about the, the, the Gentile sailors on the ship? He thought they are negligible too. So was he really a people of God who's supposed to love life? He was not pro-life. <laughs> okay? And because of narrow nationalism and patriotism, and maybe racism too. You know. And uh, he was not consistent, right? So <clears throat> the, the Gentiles, in contrast, actually performed righteously. They tried not to let blood got, get blood onto their own hands. So let's read verses 3 to 16, uh, 13 to 16. <clears throat> However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the man feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's end here. I'll leave the last verse to um, the next chapter. Okay. The Gentile sailors, they tried not to get blood on their own hands because they do not know the situation. They cannot form a, a, uh, a court and righteously uh, and justly decide if Jonah deserved death penalty. You see, they were pretty righteous. These Gentiles, they were righteous people <laughs> on this account. And they said, we cannot just throw you there. We try to go back to the land, but God prevented it. 
And then God would not fall short of his standard of justice, which is the wage of sin is death. Okay? So the Gentile sailors prayed for forgiveness before they throw, threw uh, Jonah into the sea. They say, we don't have a choice. Sorry, but forgive us. They threw Jonah into the sea. But what happened? The sea immediately quieted. Okay? And remember the disciples of Jesus. There was another prophet who was sleeping in the hold of the ship, right? And that was Jesus. He was also from a land where no prophet is supposed to come from, Galilee, right? And uh, when Jesus woke up, he quieted the sea. And uh, what did the, the believers say? Well, even the wind and the sea listened to him. And they greatly feared him. You see, <laughs> the disciples behaved like these Gentile sailors. They, the sea was pacified. It actually brought more fear of the God of the Hebrews to the heart of these Gentiles. And then they sacrificed to God. They probably had a ship, a sheep, a lamb that they haven't jettisoned, and they sacrificed it to God, and then they promised more. Now that's making vows. This is a standard pra uh, practice of the, of the Hebrews. When they are thankful to God, they sacrifice some and promise for more, as in Psalm 116, 17. Say. So who was behaving more like the believers? The non-believers. <laughs> because the believer was not obedient. Okay. Now, what can we learn from here? Number one, the right people, if you're chosen by God and saved, can be wrong. Okay? And uh, what, what, how can they be wrong? When they disobey God, okay? due to their limited understanding. For this case, Jonah, he had very narrow patriotism, nationalism, and maybe racism. Okay? And if you think, I should just love my country and just keep the way it is, but God has other plans. And right now, God brought a lot of other people here. If you don't notice, my face seems to be from the other side of the earth, down under. Okay? And we have a lot of people from the south and north and anywhere. Okay? The country is different. God has another plan. Okay? If you say, let's just keep it as it is and let's just kick people out and don't reach out to them, you may have been the right people, but you're wrong. And guess what happens when you're wrong? You're punished, and so will everybody around you. So, please, if you love people around you, repent. Get under God's umbrella of protection. Don't stand outside of God, then you're facing both God and the world. Okay. So, when the people of God sin, they will be punished more than others. And when the people of God are punished, they bring trouble to others around them. Okay. And um, just think about the, the Jewish people. They have been God's people. They have been wrong. They have been punished. But when they are kicked out to other countries, what's the natural feeling of the Gentile toward the Jews? Jealousy. Right? And what did God say? If you bless Israel, you are blessed. If you curse Israel, you will be cursed. So what happened to the Gentile nations who don't have Christ? And without Holy Spirit teaching them to understand and to respect Israel and the Jewish people, because of God's gift through the Jewish people, 
His Son, His Messiah, and His Word, right? If without Christ, what's the natural feeling of the nations toward the Jews? Rejection. And what will God do to these nations? Judgment. Right? You see? When the right people are wrong, they are punished, and they bring trouble to everybody around them. Okay. So, what can we do? Uh, well, the wrong people can be right as a contrast to the errors of the right people. So what have we learned? Pride goes before the fall, right? And humility goes before rising, okay? Jonah was too proud, too narrow, too limited, and too disobedient. He was punished, but he will learn. Let us try not to be like Jonah. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this wonderful short book, yet it's so lively and so deep, and it's so like today. And Lord, we pray that you open our heart and open our mind. Recognize that we may have been the right people, chosen by God and giving grace. And yet we may have been wrong in many things. And if we are so limited and uh, we're so narrow, we will be punished. And so will our beloved ones around us. So Father, give us true fear of God, true obedience, true understanding of your reality as the king of the universe and the ruler of all nations. And Lord, give us the heart, the love to reach out to those who are different, who are undeserving, who may seem to be undeserving, and who actually may be undeserving, just like all of us. Yet you reach out to us when we were still enemies of yours. So, Lord, give us grace, a heart of grace as yours, and make us the channel of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.